At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. A few uh, years ago, Amazon Prime released uh, the television show, The Man in the High Castle. Uh, and it was a fascinating show. I'll just uh, help if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's essentially the idea and premise of the show is what the world would look like if the Allies had lost the war in World War II. So it's a dystopian picture of America that's been divided between the control of both Germany and Japan in a kind of parallel universe. And the story of the show follows the protagonist. Her name is Juliana, and Juliana's living in San Francisco under the rule of Japan, and she encounters a series of videotapes produced by the man in the high castle. And these videotapes show clips of the world war, but in the clips that she sees, the allies win the war like we know in history. And it causes all sorts of confusion for Juliana on what is true, what is actually reality. It's a, it's a really interesting show to watch because it kind of messes with your mind. You're like watching a world that you know doesn't exist and you know the truth, but she doesn't and you're kind of trying to figure it all out together. And so one of the fascinating shows is to watch kind of the courage and actions of the main characters as they encounter the introduction to this alternate other reality and how that affects their life. The world that they had known had been under control of these powers, and yet suddenly this new information changes everything. And you see them struggle at times to want to go back to the old way of life before they encountered this reality. And yet at times they feel the courage to press on. And what they'll do sometimes in the show is go back to those old videos, those snippets of them the allies winning the war to remind them themselves that there's another world, another reality that they could pursue. And so in some ways, I think that show gives us a little bit of an illustration of why we're launching into the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, its author, the Apostle Paul, has come to believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. That all the promises that God had made in his word about redeeming and restoring a broken creation, of renewing humanity, of bringing the world to the place that God had designed it, that that is all happening now through Jesus. And not only is that happening, that we have access to that new world, that new life, that new reality because of what Jesus has done for us and by putting our trust in him. The backdrop of Romans is that the gospel changes everything. It changes us and it changes all of creation. It is the decisive moment in the history of the world. It, it's like the decisive moment of Germany losing the war and the allies winning. It's changed everything. Yet, many of us, we exist in the midst of the old world. A world that's been marked by sin, death, evil, a powerful enemy. 
And yet, for us that have put our faith in Jesus, we feel the tension and struggle between the old world and the new world of Jesus. We know Jesus has won, but when we look around, it doesn't always feel like it. Sometimes it just seems like the old world is winning, and that's just the way things are. And we can fall back into our old patterns, our old habits, our old way of living. We can be tempted to turn away from Christ and fail to press into this new reality, this new world, this new life that he has for us. We're, as we've titled this series, oftentimes new-ish. We know there's a new world. We know there's a new creation in Jesus. And yet so often we struggle with falling back into the patterns of the old ones. And what can we do? What helps us ultimately in this struggle? Well, like the tapes that are given in the show that becomes this lifeline to the potential of the new world, the truth of the gospel and its implications found in God's word become for us a lifeline to encourage us to press in and pursue the new life that God has for us. And so for the next three months, we're going to take a deep dive into three chapters in the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul gives us those truths and those implications. And we're going to see and let the gospel wash over us in all its truth and glory. We're going to be reminded of what's true in Jesus, what God has done for us. And I hope in it, encourage all of us to press on to continue to not just be new-ish, but experience the new creation that we are in Jesus. So with that said, we're going to jump in this morning right into Romans chapter 5. Just to set a little context, the letter of Romans was written to the church in, yep, you guessed it, Rome. Good guess. You guys are smart. Uh, But it was written by the Apostle Paul essentially to a church that he had never visited. But Paul's hope was ultimately to take the good news of Jesus across the known world, and he wanted to ultimately get to Spain, the western part of the Roman Empire, to share with them the truth of Jesus. But he knew that in order to get there, he would need partnership from the church in Rome. So he writes this letter essentially to help encourage the church to strengthen them and unify them so that when he comes to visit them, they'll be able to partner with him in helping the gospel get to the ends of the known world. And so Paul essentially lays out the truth of the gospel. He encourages the church's unity in the gospel, strengthens them with its implication, ultimately for their partnership. Now we're picking this letter up a little bit right in the middle, but we'll kind of jump in and I'll unpack a few things. So Romans chapter 5, starting verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, You're already thinking like, okay, we're picking up right in the middle of the letter, like what has happened? The good news for you is Paul just gave you his whole summary of chapters one through four. We've been justified by faith. What Paul has been unpacking in this letter is the reality of God's work and salvation in the world. His key verse that he starts the letter in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's proclamation from the get-go is that in Jesus, God is actually working to save a broken world and a rebel humanity. And that the way God ultimately does that is through Jesus. And when we have put our faith in Jesus, God declares us just or justified. 
For Paul, that summary and reality, that implication of the gospel that he begins with in this passage is the reality that we are justified by faith. For Paul, all of us are sinful. We're far from God. We have turned our backs on him. But God has made a way for us to be justified, to be declared righteous, to be restored in him. You might say it this way. This is kind of the theme I want us to unpack in this first passage today, that God only saves bad people. For Paul, the reality that we are justified by faith begins in the letter with the reality that we're actually unjust or unjustified. You don't need to be justified unless you're unjust, unless you're unrighteous. But for Paul, all of us are unjust. That's why in Romans chapter 3, in one of his key verses, he unpacks this reality by drawing on a number of verses from the Old Testament. And in Romans 3 verse 10, he declares, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For Paul, the beginning of the good news is the recognition that we're all a mess, that we're all bad people and unjust. But the good news that Paul declares is God saves bad people, that God takes those who are unjust and unrighteous, and God works in them to bring salvation, to welcome them back into relation and restore him, restore them to his design for people to be image bearers. The starting point for Paul in the reality of the world he wants to unpack, is that God saves. That God saves. And because God saves, a whole new world, a whole new reality, a whole new humanity is possible. And then Paul wants to begin to unpack from that place. This is that reality, that if you have experienced that salvation, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you've been justified, and a whole new world is available to you. But hear me at the start of this. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, that's the starting point. That's the key for Paul. Everything else that we will say flows from that reality. If you're here seeking, if you're visiting, if you're watching online, the starting point for Paul is the reality that God saves in and through Jesus Christ and that God's salvation is available when we put our faith in him. And then he begins to unpack what that means for us when we have put our faith in in Jesus. He offers us this morning three implications from the reality that we are justified by faith that form our reality that we live in for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus. The first thing that Paul's going to remind us is because we've been justified by faith, war has ended and access has been granted. Look with me at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So because God has come and justified us, we now have peace with him. You see, for Paul, where he begins his argument in the letter is the reality that because of our sinfulness, Paul says all of us are under the wrath of God. That's God's righteous indignation against sin. Because God is holy and perfect, he stands absolutely, totally opposed to sin and its effects. And because we are sinful, not one of us is righteous, God was in opposition to us. But now, in the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, have done, we are no longer at war with God, but we are at peace. 
Paul's not talking about the subjective feeling of peace. Paul's talking about the objective reality that we have if we put our faith in Jesus. That we now have peace with God. A ceasefire has happened. But not only that, not only do we have peace with God and we have his peace, we have access to his grace. Look what he says in the next phrase. Through him, in verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. For Paul, justification means not only that we have peace with God, but that we've actually been offered an entire new relationship. That what was once closed off from us, access into God's grace, has now been opened. We're denied no more. But we now can enter fully into the presence and reality of God and live in that reality continually. We stand in it for Paul. The beauty of justification is both God removes the negative consequences of our sin, but also invites us into the positive reality of relationship with him, which changes everything. For Paul, this results then in what he says halfway through verse 2. This results in our rejoicing. We rejoice in what he says is the hope of the glory of God. Now, this is a key phrase that we need to understand in the book of Romans. Paul's used this phrase strategically in his letter. The idea of the glory of God is the idea that you and I were originally created to be image bearers of God. We are unique. Humanity is unique in God's creation and that we were designed to both behold and enjoy God's glory and then reflect God's glory into the rest of creation so that God would be glorified. This was our original purpose. But for Paul, because of our sin, we've fallen from our original purpose. In fact, in Romans 1.18, he says, we've exchanged the glory of God, God's creation and image-bearingness of us, for created things. We stopped worshiping God, beholding Him, making Him the center of our lives, and we looked to other things to try to satisfy. That was the reality of our sin, which is why Paul in Romans 3.23, in his well-known verse, says, for all have sinned and fall short which means we lack, that's the idea in that word, we lack the glory of God. We lack the way we were designed. Sin has marred us so much that we no longer behold God's glory and we no longer reflect God's glory in the way that he ultimately designed us to be. But now in Jesus, that has been restored. Ultimately in him and will be restored fully to those of us that are in him when he returns. That's our hope. It's a restoration of our former glory. Right? We, we use that phrase a lot in, in our world, right? Being restored to its former glory. We talk about a car being restored to its former, or a house, or whatever. And it, it's the idea of something that has been, was created and designed a certain way to have a certain beauty, a certain element, a certain usefulness that's lost that over time. And then ultimately to restore to glory is to bring it back to that purpose, to bring it back to what it's meant to be. What Paul says is that in the gospel, God is doing that. He's taking our brokenness, our maredness, all the things that sin has done to us, and through Jesus, he's beginning to restore us to be the sort of image bearers that God designed us to be, to behold and receive the beauty of him and his glory and to reflect that back out into the world. And this for Paul is our hope. It's what is, God is in the business of doing and will bring to completion one day. Notice in this opening section how Paul brings in this glorious moment the reality of the fullness of our salvation. That God has brought peace to our sinful past. That God has brought grace 
to our present reality in which we stand, and that God has brought hope of the future, of the fullness of glory and how we were ultimately created to be. The totality of salvation is astounding, and for Paul, it leads to the place of rejoicing, to boasting is another way you say that word, to exuberance in the reality of who God is and what he has done. The hope of glory fuels our rejoicing and worship when we recognize the fullness of salvation that's available in Christ Jesus. But Paul then goes on to say that we have another reason to rejoice. In fact, he says more than that in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now that's an interesting verse. You're like, I get rejoicing in the glory of God and the hope of glory and restoration and goodness, but rejoicing and suffering, like those aren't two words that normally go together. How on earth can justification by faith lead us to rejoice in suffering? Well, for Paul, he's going to want us to see that ultimately because of Jesus, suffering has misfired and hope is now alive. He gives us this beautiful chain of how suffering results in hope in verse 3. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. For Paul, when we face suffering of any kind in the reality and brokenness of our lives and the world, when we've been justified by faith, that suffering produces something in us. Where prior to Christ, we would often crumble in the face and reality of suffering, suffering now begins to produce within our hearts what Paul says is endurance a strengthening or a fortification that happens to show that Jesus ultimately is sufficient even in the worst moments of life, not just the best. And then as we endure in suffering, as suffering is produced, as it fortifies and strengthens us, Paul says this produces in us character. The word there for character is the idea of something that's being tested, that's reliable, strengthened. Tim Keller says of this, it's the quality that comes with experience. That's what character here is. We use this phrase sometimes like when we talk about a sports team that's overcome adversity, we'll say that team is well tested. They have good character, right? They're reliable. They've, they've shown themselves true in the face and reality because that enduring of suffering has produced that in them. And Paul says it's this character that then leads to hope. It leads to live not a hope as in just wishful thinking. What Paul means by hope is the idea of confidence, living from a place where we're confident in the peace, the access to grace, and the glory of God that we have in Christ Jesus. For Paul, justification, recognizing that we're justified by faith in Jesus, not by our works, removes the power of suffering. Not that it means that we won't be hard, things will be hard. But when you think you're justified by your works, when you think it's your earning, what you do that earns your righteousness before God, then suffering pierces at a different level. Because when suffering comes, you either start to feel that you're being punished for your sins or that God is radically unfair because you are way too good a person to experience what you're experiencing. Suffering deals with the issue of our heart. But when we recognize we're justified by faith, what we see is that God then can take our suffering and use it in his glorious purses and that our suffering can actually produce, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, an eternal weight of glory. 
This is why Paul later in Romans 8 is going to say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Because the reality of Jesus' justification that comes through faith in him means that we still have access to God's love eternally. That suffering results one day in hope and glory, and that hope is ultimately alive. That's why Paul will go on to say in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the reality of what God does from the gospel and justifying us by faith is that God not only gives us hope in the midst of suffering for the future, he gives us comfort and what is needed in the present. He speaks his love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be fortified and encouraged. See, the reality is when we're in the midst of suffering, what we want is the comfort of knowing we're not alone and that this isn't the end of the journey. Right? I see this sometimes in my kids when they, when they go through a really challenging moment, maybe at school or they get hurt or something happens. Suffering comes in some way that they do. And what do my kids do whenever that happens? You know, right where they go, they run right to their mom. Right? It's like bypass dad on the way. We're going right to mom because they know. Why? Because there's something unique about the way a mother's love is. And I love those moments where my wife will wrap up my kids in her arms and she'll say, I love you. It's going to be okay. And sometimes that's what you need in the midst of suffering. You need the assurance that you're loved, that you're not alone, that things are going to be okay. And what Paul says is that in Christ, God brings that reality to bear in our souls. That when we suffer, God works in a way in which he wraps us in our arms, deep in our soul, and he says, hey, I'm with you. I love you. It's going to be okay. I was reminded of the reality of this just last week in a moment with my sister, and I asked her if I actually could share this story, and she gave me permission just of how God works in these amazing ways. So my sister's been going through a challenging season. She, her youngest daughter, Sage, was born uh, a few months ago with some special needs. And it's just been hard as she's adjusted to that reality and for her family. And um, over the last few weeks, has just been tiring and wearing. And she just kind of came to a place where she was just battling with depression and weariness and just the weight. She wants uh, to love her daughter well and all of that. And so she texted us, um, our family thread, last week, and she was talking about how she had just come to this moment where she was away from her family for a little bit, and she was really struggling just with the Lord and feeling just broken, struggling with depression. Um, she went out, and she had taken a book with her called God on Mute. Uh, and, and she actually shared this. I'm just going to read the text that she sent because I think it's encouraging. She said, it was an extreme, the battle in my head. I came outside and brought my God on mute book, but I couldn't read it. I felt my heart harden. There's this prayer in the book, and I prayed it out of desperation. This is the prayer that she sent. I said, Abba, Father, I know all this stuff about your love in my head, but my heart gets hard to it, and I'm tired. Please do whatever you got to do, and I mean whatever, to unclench my fists. Pry open my eyes so that I can see your tears and soften my heart so that it moves me. I don't understand why you don't just answer my prayer, but I choose to trust that you've heard me, that you care for me, and that you're somewhere out there in my case. Abba, Father, thank you for all your ways. You have blessed me. 
I honestly don't know what I'd do or where I'd be without you. I'm going to try to trust you today. Amen. She went on to share with us that in that moment as she just offered the simple prayer of saying, I'm just going to try to trust. That as she struggled, she felt the oppression of the demonic forces. She felt the struggle and the darkness began to overwhelm her. But in the moment, she began to start to pray from the Spirit of God to seek his forgiveness, to humble, to stand in the victory of Christ. And as she shares in her text, she began to experience in that moment the powerful presence of God. And just out of his love and his heart, she writes, this is her words, the demons fled, death and depression were lifted and fled. Praise our God, praise him who fights when we humble ourselves. And what you don't know in this story, and that we didn't know until we found out later, that is almost the exact same time that this was happening, my sister-in-law, so my, my sister lives in the Netherlands, my sister-in-law lives in Austin, Texas, and she was in the middle of her house doing dishes, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, having no idea that my sister was in this, just felt an overwhelming burden from the Spirit of God to begin praying for my sister. And she told us that she just put down the dishes, went up to her room, and just began to intercede and pray. And this is right when God's love begins to break into the heart of my sister and remind her. And I stood back when they shared this story, and it just, this verse literally just came to mind, Romans 5, 5. Because God's love's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Like, that's the power of the love of God and the Spirit of God, that he could lay it on the heart of someone thousands of miles away to begin interceding for someone in the midst of suffering. And in a moment, the love of God can break into a heart in the midst of struggle and free us from the demonic, free us from the fear, free us from depression. That's what salvation does. It doesn't just fix everything. It doesn't just make everything okay in a moment. But it brings the assurance that God's with you, that he loves you. And that's what's needed. And that's why Paul says we rejoice in suffering because suffering produces that sort of assurance of love. When you've walked the road of suffering and you've experienced God in the midst of your worst and darkest moments, you walk with a confidence that says nothing in this world can separate me from the love of Jesus. Suffering's misfired in the gospel and hope remains alive. And this gives us reason to rejoice. When we experience salvation in Christ, it changes not only our eternal reality, it changes our present reality right now. Because the love of God changes everything. I mean, that's why Paul goes on in verse 6 to to unpack the reality of God's love. He reminds us that because of Jesus' death, we've been reconciled and that God will ultimately bring us home. He wants us to see the reality to which God loves us. That's why he looks, this is what he says in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. As Paul reflects on the reality of what Christ did, he realizes that Christ has died for us when we were ungodly, when we were weak. That there's a certain Heroism to the reality of what Jesus has done for us. We recognize the power of someone who's willing to sacrifice their life for someone else, especially when we see it in our world for people we view as good. Yesterday, we were driving back from a family funeral, and 
I made my family stop at the National Museum for the Marine Corps, and we toured it for a little bit. And while we were in there, I was walking and reminded of the power of those that have given their lives in the course, oftentimes, to fight evil in the world. And for a moment, I was just overcome by the sacrifice that happens. And we recognize, we honor those that sacrifice for one another. When I read this verse, I I thought, the image I kind of thought of someone who's willing to die for a good person, I had the image of a soldier that's willing to die and jump on a grenade for his fellow soldiers. And we hear those stories, and there's something in us that says, that's amazing. But imagine if you woke up tomorrow, and you read a story in the newspaper about a soldier that went into a crowd of the Taliban and jumped on a grenade for them. Probably in your head you'd be like, I don't know about that one. See, we recognize heroism when it dies for good people, but what about when it's for the enemy? Yet this is what Paul says in verse 8, and this is a verse you should memorize and study and highlight. And He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we don't think sacrificing willingly for the enemy is very heroic until we recognize that we're the enemy. That when it comes to God, we're the Taliban. We're the ones who have brought injustice and unrighteousness and brokenness and evil into the world and that we all continually have. Not one of us is righteous. Not one of us does good. Not one of us brings God's eternal purposes and plans into the world. And yet the truth of the gospel is that in our enmity, in our brokenness, in our evil, in our rebellion, God loved us so much, that's when Christ died. God didn't ask you to clean up your act. God didn't wait until you had it all together. He saw you in your worst and he loved you so much he went after you and grabbed you and changed your heart and brought you from death to life when you recognize we're the enemy it causes you to stand back and marvel at the love of God and say what kind of God would love someone as broken and evil and wrong as I am Jesus that's the kind of God that would do that he loved you at your worst what kind of love is that It's a love that changes everything. And that's why Paul wants us to recognize that the salvation that is offered in Jesus is amazing. If he does that for us now, what will he do for us in eternity? That's why verse 9, he says, Therefore, if we've been justified by his blood now, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If he would declare us just now, how much more can we trust that when God brings his righteous judgment on a sinful world, we will be declared just and right? We will get to enter his new creation and his eternity. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And if Jesus would die for us, die for us in our worst, most sinful things, listen, God doesn't look at you at your best. He looks at you at your worst. That's what he died for. When you lie to your spouse, when you're harsh with your kids, when you hurt another human being, that's when God loved you. That's when he died for you. 
so how much more will his life produce in you the life and the hope of glory to come? That who he is you will have and that he will secure that eternal life for you. That's why Paul concludes, more than that, because of this is all true, even more than that, we also rejoice in God. We boast, we brag, we celebrate, we worship. Because through Jesus, we've now received reconciliation. Jesus came to save sinners. That's what he does. And God only saves bad people. And when we recognize we're the bad people, and that, that's what and where we see our justification. Because it's not in us. It's not in our works. It's what in Christ is none. That's why Jesus tells a story of two men in Luke 18 that go to the temple. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. One's the epitome of righteous in the Jewish culture. One's the worst. And the priest walks into the temple and he prays to God as Jesus says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He gives his list. This is, look, at my, look how good I am. We do this all the time. How easy it is to look around the world and say, well, I'm not like them. I'm not as bad as they are. God must be okay with me. Could be worse. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Hear Jesus' words. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the way and the path of salvation is to humbly become before God and say, God, I have nothing to offer, nothing. I have no righteousness, no goodness, nothing in me that in any ways would deserve your love, your favor, your glory, your justice. And to cast yourself wholly on the work and the reality of Jesus. Because when you do that, that's when God saves. God doesn't save good people. If you're here like, oh, I'm not that bad, then, you think, then Jesus has nothing to offer you. It's only in the recognition of our sin that we see. Because when we see that, we put all the glory then on God, on who he is, and on Christ, not on ourselves. And that's the point. That's what fuels worship. That's what causes you to rejoice. Notice how many times Paul uses, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in God through Jesus. Why? We can rejoice because we recognize salvation isn't of us, it's of Christ. We're a mess. But he loved us still. And when you see the power of the gospel, when you see that God saves bad people like you and me, and you recognize that God loved you in your worst, then you'll step back and you'll say, all glory to him. Everything I have is his. Everything I am is him. You'll boast and you'll brag, not about you. You'll boast and you'll brag about Jesus because you know he's a savior. You know his love. You know his purpose and you know his life. And so Paul says, man, that's the reality we need to live from. We need to be rejoicing people who boast in Jesus because he saves sinners like us. And so this morning, I just want to 
respond to this text really by worship, by going back and focusing our hearts and our minds on the reality and truth of what Jesus has done for us. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to spend some time to soak in the truth and reality of God's love, of his grace, of the power of salvation, to be reminded that God saves. That's the good news. Yes, we're bad, but God saves bad people like you and me. And to let that fuel our worship. Father God, I just pray right now, I'm thankful for your grace. Who am I, God, to stand up here on a stage and somehow speak? I know the depth of my own sin. I know what's in my mind when no one's looking. And yet I know and confident in this moment that's when you love me the most. You died for me when I was your enemy and I stand amazed and thankful for that. And God, I pray, I pray right now for those that are in this room. We know the depth of our own hearts. And what we need more than anything is a reminder of your love that's in Jesus. And so I pray, maybe for those that are struggling, maybe for those that do walk into this room, like the tax collector saying, I know I'm a mess, I need something. Would you come and work now, even as we worship, to remind them of the love of Jesus Christ, that he died for their sins, that he rose again. I pray you'd flood their hope and rescue them. God, for those of us that come in in our pride, that so easily convince ourselves we're better than others, I pray that you bring a humbling, convict us of our sin, and remind us still of your love and grace and kindness in that moment. But what I pray for every single person right now who's in the sound of my voice, I pray that they would encounter the love of God deep within their soul by the Holy Spirit. That's a work only you can do. So we're going to worship you, Jesus. We're going to praise you. We're going to celebrate your salvation. But we need you. We need you to do the work in our hearts and our souls that we might leave here having an experience and encounter with your love. We give ourselves in this time to you of worship and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.